Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week, the fourth installment in our Moonshot series, or my attempt to finally qualify for the Boston Marathon. Then in the kick, a preview of Monday's Boston Marathon. But first, my interview with Katherine Switzer. This year marks the 50th anniversary of her historic run as the first registered female runner to complete the Boston Marathon. In honor of the occasion, she's running the race again this year. You know, sometimes I can believe it's been 50 years, especially when I'm out running and I look down and I say to my legs, why are you going so slowly? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But other times, and I, I would say for most of the time, it seems like it was yesterday. And here it is 50 years later, and what a gift. Um, um, knock wood, I'm going to be you know, ready on that start line. While you might think you know her story, there is nothing like hearing it from Catherine herself. And I'm excited to share this conversation with you. It's coming up. Thanks for joining us. Few runners have the name recognition of Catherine Switzer. In 1967, she became famous, thanks in part to an iconic photograph that had been taken during that year's Boston Marathon. That photo shows race director Jock Semple running behind Catherine and trying to pull her off the course. In that same split second, Jock himself is about to go off the course after being body checked by a very muscular runner who also happened to be Catherine's boyfriend at the time. Catherine's real claim to fame that day, however, was becoming the first female runner wearing a bib to finish the Boston Marathon. The previous year, Roberta Gibb had completed the race, but she did it without registering and without a bib. So her finish wasn't officially recognized. I caught up with Catherine as she was about to begin tapering for this year's Boston Marathon, which she will be running with members of her organization, 261 Fearless. That number, 261, is the bib number she wore that day in Boston, 50 years ago. Catherine Switzer, thank you so much for joining us on the Runner's World Show. It's great to talk to you. Oh, David, it's so great to talk to you, too. I mean, we've been friends for a million years, and, you know, I've been a fan of Runner's World ever since the very first issue. Well, thank you for that. And so much of what is going on in running today can be traced back to the 60s and a handful of things that happened including this Boston Marathon in 1967 uh, when you became the first woman to officially run the race. It's such a great story, and you do such a great job telling the story. And I want to just ask you, if you would, to take us back to that day in April 50 years ago. Can you believe it's been 50 years? You know, sometimes I can believe it's been 50 years, especially when I'm out running and I look down and I say to my legs, why are you going so slowly? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But other times, and I I would say for most of the time, it seems like it was yesterday. And here it is 50 years later. And what a gift. Um, um, Knock wood, I'm going to be ready on that start line. And so far, the training has been going really, really well. And I'm and I'm 70. I just can't even imagine it. And I look back at that time, and I, I, I often say that I started the Boston Marathon as a girl, and I finished the Boston Marathon as a grown woman. And every day I run, I think that it, I come out the other end feeling 
whole, mature, wise, <laughs> perceptive. So yes, looking back 50 years, having that sensation is amazing. Well, can we walk back five decades with that girl then and tell us what was going on in the sport of running and how you got it in your head that you wanted to run this Boston Marathon, which was not formally even open to women then? Well, actually, David, the story begins when I was 12. And, and, you know, there weren't many options for girls going into high school. And, in fact, there were no middle school. So I was going into high school uh, at age 12 because I was a year ahead and high school began at eighth grade. And I thought maybe the dream thing would be to be a cheerleader. And um, because what else? You know, that was the role model. Mm -hmm. And when I announced to my parents that I was going to try out for the cheerleading squad, my father didn't miss a beat. And he said, life is to participate, not to spectate cheerleaders cheer for other people, people should cheer for you. The game is on the field. Why don't you try out for this new team at your school called field hockey? And I said, well, I've never even heard of that, and I don't know how to do it anyway. And he said, well, it's obviously about running. And he said, if you ran a mile a day, you'd get in shape and be one of the best players on the team. My father was a great reinforcer. <laughs> so so off we went, measured the yard, and I started running a mile a day. So for all of my high school years of playing field hockey, I, I ran this mile a day anyway because it gave me this sense of real magic and empowerment. And that, that helped me all through my high school years to avoid bad behaviors, have confidence in myself, try other things. And I kept calling it my secret weapon because I didn't know really what it meant. And and um, when people say, why do you run? And I'd say, because it makes me feel confident. But when I got to university, so here I am at Syracuse University, big powerhouse school with sports and, and scholarships, you know, 100 deep for all the men. Women had play days. They didn't even have intercollegiate sports in those days. This is 1966 for women. So because I had been running and I, and I and had amped it up to three miles a day because I thought, well, if I get to university, I've got to be going three miles a day. I went in and asked the track coach if I couldn't run on the men's team. Well, you could see the shock on his face. And he said, no, you can't run officially on the men's team because it's against NCAA rules. But if you want to come out and work out with the team, we wouldn't mind thinking I would never show up. Well, when I did show up, um, one of the, and I was very nervous because I thought the guys would think I was there to be in their face. Um, I thought that they would think, you know, this was the beginning of the feminist movement and I was there to make a statement or something when all I wanted to do was run. Instead, they were very, very welcoming. They were a different kind of guys from any other sport I ever met. They were not competitive as much as they were wanting to get things accomplished. And one of the guys there was a volunteer coach who was 50, of course, who was ancient at that time. But he was an ex-marathoner, and he came out every afternoon to run with the boys and to help with the clipboard and the whistle. And um, and he came rushing over to me and was so excited. And his name was Arnie Briggs. And he felt so sorry for me because I couldn't keep up with the guys that he started jogging with me every afternoon. And pretty soon my three miles got up to five, then 10. And he would regale me with stories about the Boston Marathon. And you can understand that every day when I finished my workout, I'd come back to my dorm and I'd, f I'd feel like Magellan. I felt like I was discovering what my body could do, discovering new territory. I was going further and further every day. I was tired, but I was really exhilarated. And so one day I said to Arnie, in fact, we were in the middle of a Syracuse blizzard. There was nothing like it. Um, and I said to him, why don't we quit talking about the Boston Marathon and run it? And Arnie said, 
because a woman can't run the marathon. I said, what do you mean? And he said, women are too weak and too fragile to run 26 (laughs) miles. I said, come on, Arnie, we're running 10 miles in a blizzard. And he said, you know, 10 miles is not 26. I said, women throughout history have done amazing things, you know, going distances like Sacagawea took the Lewis and Clark expedition across the whole country. And he said, I don't believe that a woman could possibly run a marathon. And I said, look, I've heard of women running the marathon, and even Roberta Gibb, this woman, ran the Boston Marathon last year. Well, he just exploded and said, no dame can ever run no marathon. I don't believe that for a minute. And I got really angry and said, listen, you know, you don't have a training partner unless you believe that some woman somewhere can do it. And he said, you'd have to prove it to me first, and if you'd prove it to me in practice, I'd be the first person to take you to Boston. So that's how this began, Dave. It began as a a, a challenge from my coach, who was a very sweet, loving guy, and he really was encouraging me, but he also was really afraid because marathon running for women in those days was such shrouded in such myth. Um, and, well, any arduous activity, rather, is, was shrouded in such myth. You know, you'd get big legs and grow a mustache and hair on your chest. You'd turn into a man. You know, your uterus was going to fall out. All these myths. And he had believed all this stuff, but he didn't want to lose a training partner, and he also didn't want to hurt me. So we just took it step by step. And, and you know, the day that we ran the 26 miles, he was so impressed because I actually said, let's run five more miles. And he said, what? And I said, yeah, let's run five miles. Let's make sure no matter what, we can finish the Boston Marathon. So we actually ran 31 miles. And at the end of the workout, he fainted and just totally passed out. And when, when he came to, he said, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. So that was the beginning. <laughs> that was the beginning of this amazing saga. And he was so proud of me that he helped me sign up for the race. And I obtained the number because I'd signed the entry form KV Switzer, which is another story. I wasn't trying to defraud anybody. It's that my name, Catherine, has always been misspelled because it was misspelled on my birth certificate, and it was so much easier to use my initials, and also because I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be J.D. Salinger or E.E. E. Cummings, and K.V. Switzer was cool, and that's why I was at journalism school. So <laughs> K.V. Switzer it was, and so I signed the form that way, and they obviously thought it was from a man. It was a series of coincidences getting into the Boston Marathon you couldn't have repeated in a million years. And I guess, David, everybody knows the story. Should I begin now to tell what happened in that Boston Marathon? I think so. A lot of our listeners, of course, will know the story, but I think we will have some listeners who may not know. So, yeah, let's just keep going. Okay. The day of the Boston Marathon in 1967 were probably the worst weather conditions ever in the history of the race. It was snowing and sleeting about 34 degrees, um, coming down snow with a heavy kind of wet snow. So you were frozen and wet and a headwind. All right. So I had on everything I owned, which was a baggy gray sweatsuit, and under it was the cute outfit that I wanted to show off in and couldn't wear. uh, It was on there, but I mean, I had everything else on in gloves. And everybody looked alike. So at the starting area, when we had to show our bibs and go into the starting pen, the officials were so harried with all of the things that were going on and the, and, and the confusion and the cold and the wet that they checked off my number but didn't look up and look in my face. And, and we all looked alike, actually. Right. And you had a, you, the outfit you were wearing was very baggy, right? It's not like the, the fitted stuff that people wear today. Yes, that's all we had. It was We usually got it at the Army-Navy surplus store. <laughs> and so I had the baggy sweats on and um, looked like all of the guys. 
And, and then down the road we went, and it wasn't until two miles into the race when the when the press truck passed us, first the photographers, um, and they went nuts seeing a woman in the race because that time my hair was flying and it was clear I was a, I was a woman. And alongside came a bus with the um, scribes, the journalists, and the other officials, the timers and scores. And Jock Semple, the uh, co-director of the race, was on this bus. He was a feisty Scotsman who was protecting his race from, from fools and interlopers. And he saw me in the race. The guys were teasing him about a girl being in his race wearing a number. And Jock just lost it, as, as many overworked race directors do. You know, I felt kind of sorry for him, um, afterwards anyway. Um, he just lost his temper, jumped off the this bus and went after me and, and grabbed me. And he scared the hell out of me because he came up from behind. I didn't even know he was there. I just heard him at the last minute and turned and he pounced on me and grabbed me by the shoulders and flung me back and said, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers. And he tried to rip my bib numbers off. And I jumped back, and Arnie, my coach, was screaming, leave her alone. She's okay. I've trained her. Leave her alone. And he came back after me again and had me by the sweatshirt. But my boyfriend, um, who was an ex-All-American football player, who actually was only running the Boston Marathon because if his girlfriend could do it, he could do it, um, threw a shoulder charge into Jock Semple and sent him flying out of the race. And Arnie said, run like hell. <laughs> and, and down the street we went. And all of this happened in front of the press truck. So the pictures of the incident were, were literally flashed around the world. And we, we weren't to know that at the time, but I was certainly aware that there was a press truck right in front of us because I was deeply, deeply humiliated and also really scared. You know, I thought I had done something terribly wrong. I was only there to run. You know, it was a gift from my coach, you know, celebration of the fact that I was going to run my first big marathon. And suddenly I felt like I had really done something terrible. And, and now we'd hit this official and now we were going to be in big trouble. Um, and then I got angry. <laughs> I got angry because I thought, you know, really, I've trained for this. I deserve to be here. And somehow at 20 years of age, at mile two, just after the attack, I turned to my coach and I said, Arnie, I'm going to finish this race on my hands and my knees if I have to. Because if I don't finish this race, nobody is going to believe that women can do it or sh and should be allowed to be here. I've got to finish this race. And, and so, you know, the next 24 miles, you know, were, were quite amazing. I went through murdering Jock Semple, every way a person could be murdered, um, and then finally realized it wasn't his fault. He was an ignorant man who was a product of his time. He was defending his race. That's all he could see. And then I got angry at women. I said, why aren't there other women here? And then suddenly there was this kind of epiphany. You get them when you run long, as you know. Um, but this one was that it's not the women's fault that they're not here. The fault is that, that they don't have opportunities. And I thought, well, why don't I try to create those opportunities? Why don't I try to make it happen for women? Because running makes me feel unbelievable, so empowered. And that became my goal. By the time I finished the race, I had this life plan where I wanted to try to become a better athlete because, you know, I finished in four hours and 20 minutes, which in those days was considered a jogging time. And people were, were teasing me afterwards for, for a couple of years. Oh, that was just a jogging time. Um, 
but more importantly, I really wanted to create the opportunities for women. So the dream really came from that radicalization of being attacked in the race and really having that epiphany on, on, on the course itself. So by the time I finished, I really had a life plan and knew what I wanted to do. So that's, that's the story of how the inspiration, really, uh, even if it was negative, the inspiration happened. And it really changed the whole rest of my life. Really amazing. So what was going through your mind when you were on the starting line after you had signed up as KV Switzer and after you had moved through with all the other runners and shown the officials your bib, you were wearing your gray sweats, were you just assuming that they knew you were a woman and and just let it go by or that they had no idea that you were a woman? I knew it was it was dicey. You know, before I signed the entry form, I had a talk with Arnie. I said, Arnie, I, I don't know why I have to wear a bib. And he said, you have to wear a bib. You have to be official because you're a member of the AAU. This is a serious race. You do not just go and jump in races. You have to get registered. You have to pay your two, $2 entry fee. You have to produce your travel certificates, all the stuff we had to do, and even get a medical certificate. And I said, but what if it's against the rules? So we went through the rule book, and there was nothing about gender in the marathon, and there was nothing about gender on the entry form. And I said to, to him, I said, I think we're pushing a point. And he said, look, either you run and you run properly or you don't run. And I said, okay. So I signed the form. And when I got to Boston, as I said, the weather was bad. But when I went through the starting area, I looked at Arnie, and Arnie looked at me, and he said, see, I told you there was no problem. And But I didn't go around saying to people, hey, I'm here, I'm a girl, I'm here, I'm here. But men came up to me and said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. May I take a picture with you? So it wasn't as though there was a big hubbub, and I wasn't trying to draw attention to myself at all. Hey, and let's face it, here's another thing. You know, you're in the starting line of a marathon. It's your first marathon. The last thing you want is a lot of confusion. You just want to center yourself. You just want to say, okay, take a deep breath. Get ready. you got a big race ahead of you. Just concentrate on the task ahead. So that's, that was my frame of mind. And what was the reaction of the runners around you after Jock jumped off that bus and tried to rip off your number and got body checked off the course? What, what, what did people do? You know, first of all, you have to understand that every man in that race was really nice to me. When those who passed me said, go for it, go for it, we're with you all the way, give me some tips for my girlfriend to run, that kind of stuff. And after the attack, they kind of closed ranks around me, and they were very silent. Nobody said, that guy's an idiot. Um, but they did do something. Uh, Jock, you know, my boyfriend pushed him, and then... I thought he had really hurt him, but Jock actually didn't even, he, he got his balance back, and then he got back on the bus, and then the bus came back by us, and he hung out the front door and cursed at us and said that we were in big trouble. Well, all of the guys at that point really gave him the raspberries, and mm. um, I, I thought that was great. I said nothing. I said nothing. I had my head down. <laughs> so, yes, they were very, very supportive, David. And despite the fact that most of the men who were runners back then were completely welcoming to you and to Bobby Gibb the year before, as you said, there still were these social hurdles to women joining the sport and certainly running marathons. How did these myths that you talked about, 
How did they present themselves in the culture? How were people aware of them, and why did they take root the way that they did, do you think? Well, I think two things. It, it was inappropriate for women to do arduous exercise, even though, of course, throughout history, women had done very, very arduous farming, agrarian work, even industrial work. And that that is another thing. Of course, the Victorian era also of, of prudity, you know, not showing legs, arms, um, and, you know, being very restrictive that way. So, so and also to, to sweat um, and do something tough and look strained was unfeminine and unsightly. And the other thing is it didn't do to look powerful because that somehow either made you masculine because that's equated with maleness or it um, off-put people. The other thing was it, it was the whispered stuff, you know, that you're not going to have children, you're going to turn into a man, oh, you might become a lesbian, you know, those kinds of things that were, were believed that sport made happen to you. Um, we just needed a critical mass of women to come through to embrace all sizes, colors, images, um, to to make things happen. Did you have any role models or heroes back then when well, you were? Well, I didn't have any in running. Um, Wilma Rudolph, of course, I thought was incredibly beautiful and wonderful and sylph-like, but she was a sprinter, so that I couldn't relate to that because I knew I never had speed at all. So who I related to most in the athletic sense was Margot Fontaine, the, the great ballerina, because ballet is extremely, extremely difficult. And, um, and she made it look easy, even though I knew that she was a superb athlete. And I had read about her athletic conditioning. So she was my, she was my great role model. The other role model I had as a runner was Emil Zatopek. I just, I just adored him. And when I finally met him... He lived up to every expectation of a wonderful man. And I, I adored him because um, he worked really hard. And I'm not a talented athlete, but I have the capacity to work really, really, really hard. So, you know, I, I trained myself down from a 420 marathon to a 251. And, and when I did that, I knew that anybody could do a 251, if you see what I mean, because if I could do it, anybody could do it. It's, it's a matter of hard work. But then the leap comes when you get down to like 230. Then it's talent. And I knew I never, ever had that talent. But Zatopek struck me as somebody who was willing to pay the price and really work hard and suffer. And I love that. I absolutely love that. And then, as it turns out, politically, he suffered. And, you know, certainly... Um, many of us women in the sport who were trying to push the sport forward as activists also suffered. You know, yeah. there are many times we were pilloried. I look back on some of the, the press clippings about me, and, and some of them are really, really hateful. What were some of those press clippings? I remember after the Boston Marathon, there was one that opened. If I didn't hate women golfers so much, I would hate women runners more. This was, this was in one of the Boston papers. That's how the story opened. It was a news story. It wasn't like an editorial piece. Huh. It was just t totally biased. Then there would be wonderful ones. Bud Collins, the uh, revered tennis announcer, wrote a wonderful editorial piece. It was really positive. It said, you know, we saw something today on the streets of Boston that was terrible. A man attacking a woman just because she wanted to run. And um, Frank Litsky from the New York Times um, 
I, this is a funny story. I, uh, being a journalism student, you know, you love the New York Times as you put this a paragon, right? So as a journalism student, we study the New York Times every day at Syracuse. Um, and Frank Litsky reported in his story in the Times the next day that I failed to finish the Boston Marathon. Well, I was so upset. And of course, I knew what had happened is he had covered the elites. He'd gone in, he'd filed his story. And by the time he filed his story, I hadn't finished. So he just said she failed to finish, which I thought was really very bad, inaccurate reporting. And um, so I phoned him up. Mm-hmm. I called up the New York Times and, and I said, I just have to tell you, you made a mistake. And I could hear him typing in the, in, as I was talking to him. And he kept typing and asking me questions. And then on Sunday, the whole front page of the Sunday Sports of the New York Times had this fabulous article about me. So obviously you did finish that race. What was it like when you finished? Did you have a sense right away that something was about to change? There were several things, David. Um, all throughout the race, I was very, I got quite paranoid. <clears throat> As it turned out, so did Arnie. Because every time we turned a corner or we saw a cop in the uh, intersection, tr- you know, holding up the traffic for us, I thought another cop was going to come along and pull me from the race. As it turns out, that paranoia was justified because apparently Jock had gone ahead and told the police to pull me, you know, from the race. And the police said, no, we're, we're staying out of this. Um, and as we came down toward the finish... Arnie had always remembered the finish on Exeter Street, which is where it finished in his day. And by that time, we were finishing. It turned on Hereford and finished on on Boylston. So when we were directed down to Hereford, Arnie got very, very um, uh, nervous, very anxious. And he thought they were trying to steer us off the course at the last minute. That was not the case at all. We went up Hereford, turned left on Boylston, and came down and finished in front of the Prudential. And... um, I finished in four hours and 20 minutes. Um, I actually think it wasn't a bad time for a first marathon, considering everything that had happened to me in the race. And um, and also because of the weather. The weather was terribly, terribly cold. And and when Jock had attacked me, he, he had pulled off one of my gloves. So I w- you know, it was freezing with, with that bare hand. But at any rate, we crossed the finish line. Um, no spectators, well, about six. Um, somebody gave us blankets, which was really nice, army blankets. But then there were a group of journalists who had been standing in the cold waiting for me to finish. And they were really pretty crabby. You can imagine because they'd been standing out in that freezing stuff uh, for hours. And they were really giving me all kinds of tough questions like, what are you trying to prove? Are you a suffragette? Are you a crusader? And I would say, no, I'm just trying to run. And they were they were pretty aggressive, and there was only one of them at that time who really seemed kind and considerate, and was asking me really reasonable questions. He he was very young, and as it turns out, it was Joe Concanon from the mm-hmm. Boston Globe. And as you recall, Joe Concanon went on to become the dean of marathon writing um, for the Boston Globe, and um, it was his first assignment. And, and and I imagine he was a cub reporter, and his editor said, go out and cover the girl. So it was a really good story that he wrote. He came back with a newsflash. Yeah, exactly. So what are you expecting this year as you run 50 years after you ran it for the first time? 
I ran Boston eight times. Um, I ran 67. I skipped 68 and 69 because I was scared of Jock Semple. <laughs> and then I ran, um, my last Boston was in 76. I ran my best time, my 251 in 75. And in the ensuing years, for 37 consecutive years, David, I'd done the broadcast of the race. So I've been back to Boston uh, 48 years, every year, except for those those two, 68 and 69. So... Certainly, uh, I'm very, very positively nervous, but I'm not going to be running for time. I'm going to be running for two or three things. One is it's about celebration. Uh, It's also about gratitude, you know, the sense that um, I'm really lucky at 70 to be able to consider such a thing, Um, having, you know, something like, what, 57 years, 58 years of running under my belt. It's amazing. Um, that I can do that, and I'm grateful. But the other thing is is that um, I formed a charity two years ago called 261 Fearless, named after my bib number um, that Jock tried to pull off me. And it's become now a number meaning fearless in the face of adversity. And uh, we formed a nonprofit uh, that is designed to empower women around the world using the vehicle of running to help change their lives. So 261 Fearless is a series of clubs around the world, events. We are franchising the brand 261. But maybe most importantly, it's the communication of these women, one-on-one through their local clubs and through a powerful website where they can meet each other, uh, whether they are in China or Iran or Austria or Chicago, and communicate and make friends and know that through running, they're not alone out there. And we, in Boston this year, we have about 120 people, if you can imagine, who are raising money for this charity. But we are all going to be having a wonderful weekend together to celebrate uh, and to cover that distance, whether we're three-hour runners or six-hour runners. Well, on the theme of empowering women, I want to go back in time again to post-Boston and to this vision that you had during the race, that not only did you want to finish that race, but you wanted to help other women enter the sport and and become runners. So how did that get started? Walk us through the the next, you know, five, ten years where things really began to change because social change takes a long time. It's not like you cross the finish line and all of a sudden women flooded into the sport and they decided to open up the Olympics uh, to female marathoners in 1984. It took a while. How did you get from the finish line of Boston to meaningful change in the sport, of course, with help from a lot of other people? Yes, David. Honestly, when I crossed the finish line, it wasn't like we leapt forward. In fact, I got slammed back because Mm -hmm. I was expelled I was DQ'd from the race and expelled from the Amateur Athletic Federation for a year because I had fraudulently entered the race because I had run without a chaperone. I had run more than a mile and a half, and I had run with men. All really hateful things. So what I did, you began locally. Um, I went back to Syracuse with Arnie and my, my buddies, and we created the Syracuse Track Club, and we started putting on meets, a road run every Tuesday, a track meet, and we did that all summer long, and we got people to come from all over, and that track club grew to be the second biggest running club in all of New York State after the New York Roadrunners Club. 
I became the first uh, Niagara representative to the AAU for women's long-distance running. They had a men's, so I said, well, you should have a women's, and they said, okay. Um, and then with Nina Cusick, with Sarah Mae Berman, especially Pat Tarnowski, we started doing legislative work and, and asking the AAU to consider making us equal and official in long-distance events. We did this legislation, and finally it was actually um, the uh, the Roadrunners Club of America who championed it the, the hardest for us, and we got us official in the first major marathon, which was the Boston Marathon. So that was 1972. And when that happened, it was really, really wonderful. For the first time, we could run as athletes uh, and not be concerned with being women first. And it was that was really a significant breakthrough. After that, I was utterly convinced that uh, events were the key thing. Um, Nina, Fred Lebo, and I were instrumental in creating the first ever women's road race, which was the Crazy Legs Mini Marathon in New York Central Park. And that uh, race inspired me to say, women's only race, a women's race. That would do it because the IOC was saying, you know, you're not going to get a, a, a marathon ever in the Olympic Games. And I thought, duh. Okay, let's show them that women can do it on their own. So I decided, okay, well, let me start a series of women's only races. And I wrote a business proposal, never thinking in a million years anybody would, would go for this. But I decided to take it around to a lot of different sponsors. And the, the first one I took it to was Avon Cosmetics. And I said, okay, okay, you can do one race. Well, that one race turned out to be the Avon International Marathon in 1978 in Atlanta. And we pumped it up by having a budget to actually fly in the best women marathoners from around the world. And I'll never forget an unheard of, an absolutely, totally unknown young woman named Martha Cooksey. Marty Cooksey won that race, and she won from all the great champions that were, were prominent at that time in 78. So this was exciting news, um, and we began then with Avon to put on these races all over the world. Uh, eventually, we had races in 27 countries, 400 events, over a million women. And the data and statistics we could gather from those races convinced the International Olympic Committee to include a women's marathon in the Olympic Games. Uh, one race in particular was very important. 1980 in London, we closed downtown London streets for the first time in history for a sports event. And in, in fact, the leader of the Greater London Council said, ladies, I salute you. We've only closed these roads for the queen. Now we had it for a women's marathon. The reality is, is that London was looking at New York and thinking of doing a marathon, a big city marathon. So we did the Avon Marathon first in 1980 as kind of a test run. We had 150 women. The news was fantastic. We had NBC covered it start to finish because they couldn't go to the Olympics in Moscow because the Moscow Olympics had been um, boycotted. BBC, everybody. The coverage was overwhelming. And the theme was that we were required to have three continents in 24 countries for Olympic inclusion. And we had um, five continents and 27 countries. So we fulfilled our Olympic requirement. 
We had medical evidence supplied by wonderful people like Dr. David Martin, who is one of your uh, medical consultants for Runner's World. Mm-hmm. Um, we had um, a- a performances such as Greta Weitz and Jumbo Noitz. So we had the international data and everything re- required, presented it again to the International Olympic Committee, and they voted in, in a special session in 1981 for the 1984 Olympics, the w- first women's marathon. So that that is a real lesson in both persistence and sheer belief of changing a very august body because the IOC does not move real quickly. Right. And to, I mean, this was warp speed to go from me in the Boston Marathon in 67 to being expelled to getting the women's marathon in 1984. That's warp speed. Well, Catherine, what an incredible journey. Congratulations on your 50th anniversary. I hope your training continues to go well, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you in Boston. It's going to be a great celebration, David, and I look forward to seeing you at that finish line, uh, having a cold beer someplace, <laughs> um, and, and reliving a lot of these wonderful, wonderful memories. And, and most importantly, um, I'm hoping that this 50th anniversary run will spread the word, pass the word around to, the, uh, to other people, uh, and encourage them to start putting one foot in front of the other. And to read Runner's World, of course. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us, Catherine. It was great to talk. Thank you, David. That was my conversation with Catherine Switzer, the first registered female to finish the Boston Marathon and the author of several books, including Marathon Woman, that told the story from start to finish. If you are going to be in Boston this weekend, I've got great news. Catherine will be speaking at 1 p.m. this Saturday, April 15th, at our Runner's World pop-up store at 899 Boylston Street. In fact, starting on Friday and continuing through Sunday, we will have live seminars featuring notable runners like Catherine and Dean Karnazes and Bart Yasso and Dave McGillivray and Shalane Flanagan and Ambie Burfoot. There will be strength training classes, nutrition seminars, and shakeout runs. And at 11 a.m. on Sunday, the people who make this show, as well as our other podcast, Human Race, will be there for a meet and greet or open house of sorts. That's producer Christine Fennessy, producer Sylvia Ryerson, Rachel Swaby, who's the host of Human Race, and myself, and maybe a couple of other special podcast guests. The weekend is a jam-packed schedule full of interesting people, free classes, and informative topics, and we would love to have you take part. Again, it's all going down at our Runner's World pop-up store at 899 Boylston Street in Boston this weekend. And just one note, space is limited for some of these events, so sign up now. You can check out the full schedule and find the link to register for classes at runnersworld.com audio. Next up, unraveling the mystery of the injury that has thus far thwarted my training for the BQ I want very badly. As I said in the last Moonshot Marathon episode, that's episode 46 if you are just joining the story, after I injured my calf while doing mile repeats with my running coach, Julia Lucas, that was the second setback I had suffered just as my training was getting underway, I spent a lot more time over the following couple of weeks in the gym with Joe Holder, my other primary Nike coach, than I spent outside running with Julia. And this 
is how every workout with Joe began. All right, Joe, what is this thing? What, what is its purpose? So basically you can work a little bit more efficiently than a foam roller, kind of simulate you a little bit before the workout starts, but also kind of get your connective tissue stimulated. You can't tense on it. So the whole point of using a foam roller is having those certain areas relax and open up and then get the nervous system stimulated efficiently instead of tensing and trying to squeeze everything, which really does no good. So yeah. this gun, I could target it in areas a bit more specific and efficiently, and you can't really tense up while you're on it. <laughs> And where are you going to put that thing on me? Well, for you, this will be uh, in your quads, definitely. I mean, runners, you know, quad dominant, want to get you out of there. That hamstring slightly. And then the glute kind of takes some of the pressure um, off your back and cue up. Okay, here we go. <laughs> the Theragun looks like a power tool with a motor and a chunky handle and a battery pack. I guess it is a power tool, just one that was designed to work on human tissue by way of a knob that vibrates viciously at the pull of a trigger. That knob is the size of a lacrosse ball, but it's much harder. If you've never had the pleasure of submitting to a Theragun, we put a photo of Joe's on our show page. All right, now he's about to put it on my calf. Ah, and the Achilles. Wow. It's one of those things, it hurts so much when it's happening, but you know it's for a good reason. Uh, and it feels so good when, he, when it stops. The QL that Joe mentioned a minute ago, that's the quadratus lumborum, a muscle in the posterior abdominal wall. It is the deepest of the abdominal muscles, and it's impossible to reach with a foam roller or even a Theragun. It runs vertically, up and down, right behind our kidneys. So it's commonly referred to as a lower back muscle. And my QL had been killing me for about a year. A blade in my lower back when I pulled on my socks or sat for too long or sat up in bed every morning. My QL pain was the result of a confluence of problems. But the bottom line is that my QL pain was wreaking havoc on my running and probably causing other physical woes that were keeping me from really, finally training hard for my BQ attempt in May. Joe was intent on getting rid of my QL pain, which meant changing the way my body moves. But that wasn't his only mission. For two weeks after my calf injury, I tried to train through it. I continued to run gingerly, while rehabbing and going to physical therapy and massage therapy, while running on a pancake-flat towpath to minimize the stress on my calf. I even got through a Sunday 10-miler with modest pain, maybe a 4 on a scale of 1 to 10, but only by sticking stubbornly to 9 minutes per mile pace. That's 30 seconds slower than my usual easy run pace. But the next Sunday, I tried another 10-miler, And despite my coach's instructions, I sped up to 8.30 pace. After all, this was in late February, exactly three months before my marathon, when I would need to run 26.2 miles at under eight-minute pace. And my calf seized again. This time, it was more like a nine. I limped back to my car, cursing myself for allowing anxiety and impatience to take over. This was definitely my lowest point yet. 
three days later, Joe and I had a heart-to-heart. Joe, who still looks every bit like the wide receiver he was at the University of Pennsylvania, is a keen technician of the athlete's body. He can watch people walk down the street and tell you where they are holding tension and probably feeling pain. And Joe has a curious mind and a philosophical bent. He suffered plenty of injuries in his playing career, including a broken leg, a torn right shoulder labrum, and torn ligaments that left his right pinky permanently bent out from his hand at a slight angle. His own odyssey of injuries inspired Joe to explore wellness in a holistic way, and he sent me links to articles about Wu Wei, the Chinese concept of strategic non-action, and about the need to build not just fitness, but also resilience, the ability to get through unexpected and difficult challenges, but not by just toughing it out. Joe said, the best way for me to achieve my running goal, a sub-330 marathon, faster than I've run one in more than 10 years, was to stop running, at least for now. So I stopped running. I hoped it wouldn't be for long, but I bought in, mostly because Joe assured me that he would not only help me get healthy, he would also maintain my fitness with personalized two-hour workouts in the gym that simulated the intense running I wasn't able to do. Every other Wednesday, he came out to the Runner's World offices in Pennsylvania, and on alternating weeks, I went into New York City where he's based. Here, we're at the gym in Lower Manhattan Joe uses to train his clients, about to begin an interval workout. Right now, we're going to set up about a minute on the bike, 30 seconds on the ropes, and then you're going to switch. Okay. We're going to keep that moving. And a pretty high intensity on the bike. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. I, your, your uh, heart rate should get pretty close to your max. Okay. Cool. Here we go. Let's do it. I started on an Airdyne bike, which has a front wheel that's shaped like a fan. This creates wind resistance while you pedal. I was pedaling hard and also pumping my arms back and forth on the movable handles, which also provided resistance. It was like sprinting and doing pull-ups at the same time. And Joe, all six foot three of them, was standing right behind me to make sure I was getting close to my maximum heart rate which my initial tests at Nike headquarters indicated was 185 beats per minute, and that I was staying there. Here we go, here we go. Good. After a minute on the bike, I got off and walked 20 feet or so over to the heavy rope. I had seen these things in gyms before, but had never used one. So double, two hands? Yes. Same time? Mm Mm-hmm. The rope was 50 feet long. It was thick, and it weighed about 30 pounds. I picked up the tag ends, one in each hand, and with bent knees and a wide stance, moved my hands up and down in unison so that the rope began moving back and forth like a sine curve. It's not like any motion you would ever use in your daily life, but it strengthens several areas that runners often neglect, including the core, the glutes, the shoulders. Before my first 30-second burst was over, I was gassed. Five, four, three, two, one, good. Am I resting right now? Yeah. Am I done now? No. 
Sorry. No, I was not done. I had two more rounds of bike-to-rope intervals in that first set to do. And after a three-minute rest, I had another set to do. And after that, another. Even though the motions are totally different from running, I have to say, it was working. I felt the same nauseous, hands-on-my-knees fatigue that I felt during speed workouts. I could feel myself getting fitter and stronger. And there's a good lesson in here, especially for injured runners. We hold on to fitness longer than we realize. And it is absolutely possible to simulate the physiological benefits of running without running. But even though I was holding on to my fitness, that did not mean that my calf was getting any better. So on a reporting trip to Nike headquarters in Oregon in March, Julia urged me to see Dr. Justin Whitaker, a chiropractic sports physician in Portland. Julia called him a human MRI machine and and said that he had put her career back together many times when she was running competitively with Nike. So early on a Friday morning, I visited the Whitaker Wellness and Performance Center. We would only have about 20 minutes together, and because Dr. Whitaker had never examined me before, I was skeptical that anything miraculous would come of it. When Dr. Whitaker walked in, I was immediately put at ease. Julia had given me the distinct impression that he was sort of a runner whisperer who could make connections that other specialists often miss, and I could see why. He just exudes expertise. I told him about my injury, about how the pain built up slowly and steadily on the upper outside part of my left calf while doing mile repeats with Julia. Can I have you line the table? And I just want to see how that's moving. Okay. And, uh... When it goes to that lateral side, especially when you're going up-tempo, my immediate suspicion is your main toe flexor, your flexor halysis. It's sort of our main drive line. When we get up on the toe, we're going to get a lot of leverage from the big toe, and that muscle belly goes along the arch, underneath the Achilles, and then pops out the outside here. So when it gets worked or overloaded, you'll definitely get a sense of it getting steadily tighter. And because it's sort of our main workhorse, it's just as you described, it's like having the dimmer switch get, you know, turned on. The tightness builds, builds, builds to the point where the muscle can't really do the job it's being asked to do. And you can feel it. And that's, yeah, that's you're right a, on it right there. That's a very distinct little cord there. And that's flexor halysis that you're dealing with. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll call it FHL for short. It's okay. your flexor halysis longus. Okay. And uh, it's just one of those really stoic hard workers. When we look at uh, speed efforts where you're more up on your toe, that's where FHL starts to be more incorporated. And just based on wear and tear, you'll find that that muscle, instead of being an elastic band, it starts to layer up with tightness Mm -hmm. to the point where it doesn't show much much elasticity at all. And then it's very prone to being strained. We're still throwing the workload at it, but now it's no longer elastic and it easily is overwhelmed to the point where the Fibers are being tested, they're being stressed, and then they cut to the point where they just can't compensate any longer. So let me just do a little test to see if there's any other ankle mechanics that might play into that. Here, Dr. Whitaker moved my right ankle around and side to side, and then did the same with the left ankle. So when I just do that comparative study, we want to see what your baseline is. Right heel, I was hoping this would be the case, it moves quite freely, especially this lateral component. You can feel that's able to pivot. When I do the same test on this side, 
there is no motion. So you see how locked that is? So your calcaneus, and this can be something that happened a while ago. It doesn't have to be a full-on ankle sprain. It can just be one of those little missteps where the ankle kind of gets jammed or twitched, if you will, and the calcaneus gets stuck there, and then it has a hard time resetting. And our body is so good at compensating that we'll just keep on rolling until it hits that ceiling where it can't compensate any longer, and then pain starts to develop, and you get muscles that are overworked, and away we go. So, so yeah, it's kind of an interesting little mechanical playoff. Okay, let's pause here for just a minute. Before I walked into Dr. Whitaker's office, I had no idea that all of us have a muscle called the FHL. But that is where I was injured. Then Dr. Whitaker mentioned my calcaneus. That's the heel bone. I hadn't even been thinking about my heel. I was focused on my calf. Left to my own devices, I would have continued to ice, heat, stretch, and foam roll my calf and wear compression socks and get massage therapy. And none of it likely would have made any difference because none of those things would have pinpointed the underlying cause of the calf strain, like Dr. Whitaker was doing in that moment. And that was related to my heel and my left ankle and probably to an injury I suffered almost three decades ago, a recurring ankle sprain from my own football playing days in college. I hadn't thought of it in years until I was on Dr. Whitaker's table and he said the words full-on ankle sprain. Could that really be the culprit of my calf injury? Well, yes, especially if the ankle joint never really got fully unstuck and I proceeded to run thousands of miles and multiple marathons and half marathons on it over the subsequent years. I was oblivious to the hidden flaw because my body tried to compensate for it until something had to give. And in this case, in that interesting little mechanical playoff, as Dr. Whitaker put it, that something was my left FHL. Because I had so little ankle mobility, my FHL had been doing way too much work. And now it was done. Now, we spoke of the ankle and heel originally. Um, Often what we'll see is the calf tightness is what's contributing to that heel not releasing. So we're sort of visiting both sides of that equation. We want to assure that the muscles are loose and pliable throughout the calf. And then in turn, when it comes for us to reset the ankle, it'll be then able to free, freely move and adjust quite easily. Still okay with that pressure? Yeah. So now I am tipping into... Tip so he's trying to fix two interrelated so problems. He's trying to release my FHL which he compared to a steel cable, and he's trying to improve mobility in my left ankle. To achieve both of those things, he uses a technique called active release therapy, or ART, to manipulate the areas that aren't moving freely. He applies varying degrees of pressure to my heel and ankle and calf muscle while rocking my foot back and forth and side to side. But unlike with the Theragun, Dr. Whitaker's movements are subtle. They don't hurt at all. And after only five or 10 minutes, he seems satisfied that my FHL has released, and after another few minutes, that my left ankle is moving more freely. There we go. Okay. So the next piece I wanna add in there is, I wanna add in the heel bone. You able to feel that? Yeah, it feels like there's a little more lateral movement in there now, is that? That's right. Are you feeling it? Yeah, there we go. So that's 
that I know it'll feel a little creaky at first, but that's the hinge we want to feel moving. And that's kind of the key piece of it, a little bit of daily maintenance, icing after your runs, keeping your electrolytes up. It should help you balance quite well. That's the other piece of the puzzle. We often uh, describe the calf as sort of the low man on the totem pole. It seems like every other muscle in the body gets hydrated first, and the calf is last. Just because it's so far down on the body, it's so low? You're right. It's a circulatory issue. There's not as much blood exchange. So when you have an element of injury, it's sort of still low on the priority list. So you have to almost accentuate, you know, the amount of hydrate, hydration you do, you know, the zinc, magnesium, potassiums especially. Those are the building blocks that are going to help the tissues repair. So you almost want to, if you already drink water in your daily routines, great. But you almost want to top it up with an extra medicinal layer, you know. And okay. magnesium, well, they're all water-soluble, so there's no difficulty in taking them. Magnesium is the only one you got to be careful of. If you, it's a daily dose of 1,000 milligrams. None of us can really take 1,000 milligrams because it will upset your gut. But somewhere in the 250 to 500 milligrams, that's going to be fine. But it allows your body to get the kind of building blocks into the area that need it. And that way you're going to help speed the recovery and keep the tissues pliable. Um, there's a lot of folks that do all the right things. You know, they stretch well. They, you know, kind of monitor their mileage. They're kind of wearing the right shoes. They're doing all the right things. But if they're not hydrating, their calves are like bricks, you know. So it's just one of those little pieces of the puzzle you can employ. And that was that. I upgraded my hydration by adding an electrolyte tablet to my water bottle every day, and my calf pain was gone. So maybe something slightly miraculous happened after all. I have gained a completely new understanding of how my running body, or my machine as Julia likes to put it, is designed to work and how it actually works, and how the difference between those things is causing problems. Problems that would likely thwart my upcoming BQ attempt unless all this detailed learning and painstaking work began to pay off in the only way that really matters in this Moonshot project, when I run. I felt like it was starting to pay off, thank God. But there was another opinion that was more important than mine. So before my next run with Julia, I asked her what she thought. So definitely, in a word, <laughs> yes. And uh, the most apparent thing to me immediately whenever I see you for the first time and uh, when we meet up is that you just look so much happier. <laughs> You're so much happy to be here. You're not overthinking every movement. You just seem comfortable. Um, you just seem excited for the day. Uh, more specifically uh, and physically, uh, the way I see it is that you're moving with a greater fluidity, a looseness of joint. You look to me like you're moving younger. You can see from across uh, from across the street sort of how old someone is. Are they 20? Are they 50? Are they somewhere in between? And you look younger to me in the way you in the way you 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 walk towards me before practice, and in, of course in the in your drills and in your running. Wow. <laughs> are, you, are you pandering to my <laughs> nearly 50-year-old anxiety that you're assuming is there correctly? No. <laughs> Seriously, you, I, I look like I'm moving like a younger person? I think that you feel that, uh, yeah. too. I, and Joe will back me up. Anyone will recognize that sort of looseness of joint is the phrase that comes to mind, but it's in the hips, it's in the shoulders, it's in uh, your kinesthetic awareness, just the way you move through the world. Um, 
as you get older, you develop these adhesions and these bad movement patterns and this, these restrictions and gravity takes hold. And as a child, you don't have those. There's just a greater body cooperation and, um, and diversity of movement that, that create these, these balletic sort of movements and, and you see it in every step. And, uh, as a person ages, oftentimes that, uh, that disintegrates and it doesn't, it doesn't have to, uh, and you've shown and, um, we see all the time. It's not something that, uh, that is rare if you do the right things you can sort of turn back the clock wow okay i love <laughs> i love hearing that yeah so speaking, i love seeing it so speaking of every step i'm curious when you say you notice it what is it that you notice when i'm running specifically so the first time we talked our first run that we did on the west river path um i had you lean forward and fall into your run more rather than uh, than this sort of robotic, almost militant running style, uh, where where every step was this this pre-planned movement. I wanted you just to feel natural in your in your body in your stride, and and you did a great job of sort of mentally facilitating that. But uh, but it's not just mental. You know, you live in your body. You're asking your body to do something. <laughs> so. Uh, so with Joe's help, with the help of your doctors, with the help of your patience and restraint and just being a great athlete and not being stubborn like we all want to be as runners, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's working. <laughs> uh, you are just leaning slightly forward into your run. You have more movement in your thoracic spine, which was locked up, which made this sort of lack of separation between your your shoulder and torso, you were sort of glued up there and it replicated in your pelvis. So you created sort of waddle movement. Yeah. It's a horrible thing to say about <laughs> a runner, but uh, it, it led to a lack of, rather than running on an elliptical pattern, like an unbroken, the unbroken oval you draw with each ankle um, that's, that's never ending. It's not, a sharp up and down, but rather creating sort of a wheel out of yeah. each of your um, out of each of your legs, out of your running stride. Uh, rather than doing that, you had this robotic movement, and now you're just running on that ellipse. Aside from being told that I used to waddle, <laughs> this was great to hear. That Sunday, I did a flawless 11 miler, the longest run I had done in 10 weeks since before that little hip niggle. No pain in my hip or my calf, or even my stubbornly stabbing QL. I was pain-free for the first time in a long time. And I got my newly revised plan for the final eight weeks of my training. An upcoming episode of my Moonshot Quest will really get into the details of how this team of experts planned to get me ready, now that they had gotten me healthy, to hit a very big goal in a short amount of time. It will be a lot of hard work and very focused training. The team had told me from the beginning that threshold workouts would be a key part of my plan. Designed to improve my lactate threshold, they would be run at or near my lactate turn point of 725 pace for progressively longer periods of time. I would basically be doing them every week. Four days after that flawless Sunday morning 11 miler, I headed over to the local high school track from my office 
to do my very first threshold workout in more than two months. There had been heavy thunderstorms all day long with lightning and crazy high winds, so I had to wait until the end of the day to do my workout. On my easy warm-up over to the track, I ran past a river that had burst its banks and been turned the color of Yoohoo. But when I started doing my warm-up on the track, the rain actually stopped for the first time all day. A girls' lacrosse team came out of the locker room to warm up for their game on the infield of the track, and the lights came on above their field next door. I actually took off my rain jacket after my first lap. The workout was six times one kilometer repeats right at my threshold pace of 725. It went great. It felt so good to run fast again, even though it felt hard. And on my cool down run back to the office, proud of myself, kind of amazed at just how good I was feeling, I looked back over toward the lacrosse field. There was a mist around each one of the lights, like a swarm of insects. And in the distance, rising above a line of trees, I kid you not, was the barest hint of a rainbow. If you missed the previous installments in this series, check out episodes 38, 41, and 46. And to catch up on Nike's Breaking 2 project, listen to episodes 33, 42, and 44. We'll have those episodes compiled for you on our show page at runnersworld.com audio. Next up in the kick, a preview of Monday's Boston Marathon, from the top Americans to watch to the storylines you will want to follow. Now it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek, reporter Kit Fox, and contributing editor Aaron Strout. All right, so before we dive headfirst into the Boston Marathon, I, I did promise one listener we would mention one thing. We're going back to the Barkley Marathon. Got to give one, them what they want. One final thing. Listener named Guy, he emailed this weekend. He said, how could you talk about the Barkley Marathons last week when you didn't mention Gary Robbins? And... Um, that was kind of a deadline thing. So um, just to quickly explain, Gary Robbins did not finish the Barkley Marathons. He came in six seconds kit after the 60-hour time limit. It was a nut finish. <laughs> um, he was delirious. I think he went through a river. But Gary, um, he was there last year on the fifth loop and didn't finish. So in a 60-hour race, he missed it by six seconds. He came in six seconds after the 60-hour cutoff. Now, if you ask... Gary Cantrell, um, he DNF'd more than that because he probably went off course by about two miles. Okay. He didn't come in the right way, but either yeah. way, Canadian Running Magazine, they did a great job the entire time at the Barkley Marathons. Um, they caught video of this, so you can go back to the article, see how crazy it was. His <laughs> wife was right there. Um, but either way, it's super impressive to get out on five loops and give Gary Robbins a lot of credit. Should have mentioned him last week. Okay, kids, so we're going to transition from what might be the hardest race in the world to maybe the most prestigious race in the world. That's the Boston Marathon. Figured we should bring in somebody who is going to help us cover the event next Monday. A lot more 
expertise than I have. Yes, definitely. That's why we had to call in Aaron Strout, contributing editor for Runner's World. He's going to be in Boston with you covering the event. Aaron, how are you doing out in Arizona right now? I'm doing great. I can't wait to get to Boston. Now, speaking of this, um, that makes me think, how are your dogs dealing with the fact that you're going to be in Boston? (laughs) They... You know what? They're going to one of their favorite person's house, so I think they're going to be just fine. And um, I I remember one year I actually watched Boston with Marley, my older dog, and it was the year that Desiree Linden did so well. She almost won by two seconds, and I was screaming and yelling in the house, and he got very excited (laughs) about it. So he's a big Boston Marathon fan. Yeah. Have Marley and Sailor, have they picked the winners yet? And, And how do their predictions fly with yours? Uh, you know what? We haven't talked about it too much yet, but um, I'm going to say that they're just going to side with whatever I tell them. So. <laughs> All right. So as long as you bring them back a treat, I think everything will be good on their end. Um, but you mentioned Desi. She's in the field this year. So let's go right into the top storylines on the women's side. What should people be looking for in the race on Monday when the women tow the line? Well, I think uh, Americans have a lot to look forward to on Monday. Um, I'm going to take a huge gamble and say that I think this is the year an American can win. Wow. Um, oh. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm putting it out there. Uh, we haven't seen an American woman win Boston since 1985. That was Lisa Rainsberger. Wow. Yeah, that's a long time. And I like the way that uh, Desiree Linden has been putting it out there, that her goal is to win Boston this year. And I know that that she could do that. Um, I I get the feeling that her training has gone really well. She seems very relaxed. And just over the years when I've seen an elite athlete with sort of that relaxed attitude with a big goal, it seems like big things can happen. So I think that's one of the big storylines to watch. So we'll look out for Desi. Uh, Who else are we we gonna watch? Like who's her biggest competition, Um, you know, particularly in the international field? Well, the defending champion is coming back, and her name is Atsidi Besa. She's from Ethiopia. Um, so I think she's one person you have to watch out for, seeing as she won it last year. Um, another person that I'm really interested to see how she does is Jordan Hesse. This is actually going to be her first marathon ever. We should say cover model Jordan Hesse on the Runner's World cover. For the May issue. Yep. yep. Yes. And had a, gr- uh, had a great race in Prague with the half marathon. Yes, things are looking really good for Jordan. Um, you know, in a first marathon for anyone, including elites, you never know what's going to happen. But um, we've seen that her fitness and her tune-ups have been really, really promising. Um, she just ran a 107.55 half marathon in Prague last weekend, um, which is the third fastest half marathon for an American woman ever. So I think we can... We can assume that she's as ready as she can be. So uh, I know you've talked to Desi ahead of this race. Big expectations. Really what I want to know, we all know, or at least I know, that she's a whiskey connoisseur. Did she say what uh, whiskey she's going to celebrate with if she wins? You know, I actually haven't talked to her yet. Uh, Sarah Lorch Butler has. And I don't know if that question was asked, but um, I know that she was tasting some beers uh, in Boston a couple of weeks ago. So. Okay, good. It, it it should be asked. I think I think the people need to know the important questions. Yeah, Sarah will be there as well. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So we if she does win in the in the press conference, Aaron, we expect that to be the first question that you ask. 
absolutely. I, I don't think I'll lose any credibility if that's the first thing I have. <laughs> now, one person I know you did speak with um, recently was Meb, and it is his last Boston this year. He's been gearing up for it. Um, so after talking with him over the phone as he's prepping, how do you think he is going into this week? It's kind of a, another interesting field on the men's side, but one of the biggest storylines is Meb. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so this is going to be Meb's last uh, Boston Marathon before he retires from competitive racing. Um, obviously, he's always always a sentimental favorite for Americans, and especially since he won Boston in 2014. Uh, I did talk to him on Friday, and he seems to be doing pretty well. He was up in Mammoth Lakes uh, getting a little bit of altitude training in following the New York City Half Marathon. Um, he didn't do as well there as he wanted to. He had actually had a little hiccup in his training because he was out, I think he said, sort of in a grassy area, and he hit uh, some sort of hole in the ground that he didn't see coming, and he twisted his ankle a little bit. So he didn't do as well in, in New York City for that tune-up as he wanted to. Uh, he said that these past two weeks have gone pretty well for him. Um, I asked him what his goals are, and he said that he, in true Meb form, I, I know that everybody has said has heard him say that he wants to run to win, yeah. uh, but uh, and that's his goal. But um, his other objectives would be to um, be in the top ten, um, and if that's not panning out for him, he said he's going to find somebody to run with and cross that finish line with. Well, and of course. The men's field is exciting because it's basically a repeat of uh, the American field in the Olympics. Uh, so we've also got Jared Ward and Galen Rupp. What do you expect from both of them? Well, I'm hoping that Galen makes it to the starting line. Um, he, he's been battling some plantar fasciitis uh, since the beginning of the year. He did run the Prague Half Marathon uh, a couple weeks ago, and he didn't do as well there as he expected to do. And he said that his foot was giving him some problems. So hopefully he starts. I think if he starts, he's going to be competitive. Obviously, he won the bronze medal in the Olympics, so he can certainly compete on an international level and a world-class level. Um, and Jared Ward, obviously, also an Olympian, will be there. Um, and I think, you know, the one thing you have to keep in mind um, when you look at, you know, personal bests on paper a lot of runners are coming from all over the world that maybe look to be faster on paper, but in an elite race like Boston, it's often very tactical. So it really can be anybody's race. Uh, and if it gets down to those last five miles, just watch out because it can it can go to anyone. And, and I, I just want to give the listeners and all of us just one more reason uh, to cheer for Galen Rupp to win the Boston Marathon. It's been said out loud and it's on paper that runner's world associate editor ali nolan will get a tattoo of his face if he wins the boston marathon so wow we are all cheering the for galen it's it's for the tattoo so mm -hmm. um what about on the international side um we talked about the americans what about um the top africans or ethiopians in this race um who can we expect to be up there with these top americans uh, I think there are a few people. Um, I would say that uh, Mutai from Kenya, uh, he comes in with the fastest PR, which is a 203.13 from Berlin in uh, 2014. Obviously, you got to watch out for him. There are a lot of Kenyans and Ethiopians that come in, a large number of them with uh, 205 PRs. <laughs> So, uh, 
you know, it just depends on who's healthy, who's had good training, who's had bad training. So, uh, and Wesley Career is coming back. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of guys that are top notch. So we'll see. So Kit, you'll be in Boston. Aaron, you'll be in Boston. Um, Kit's on the assignment just to find interesting stories. That's kind of what I've put into his uh, to-do list on Monday. Yeah, just just find things. Kit, find things. Aaron, (laughs) you're covering the event. Um, Anything else in general that you think people um, will be interested in watching for on Marathon Monday? Uh, I think one more woman to watch for is Blake Russell. Um, she's a 2008 U.S. Olympian in the marathon, and I just talked to her as well. And she um, kind of had a fun story that she she's a master's age runner now. She doesn't think of herself in that way quite yet. But um, she, during her training, she took two high school freshman boys um, and taught them how to do tempo runs. So I talked to one of the uh, boys, actually. <laughs> Um, over the weekend, and he said that although he, when when they started doing this, he was very intimidated to be running with an Olympian, um, and and she still, in his words, kicks his butt. <laughs> but he can hang with her now for five miles at five forty four pace, and he's super excited to watch the Boston Marathon and, and see how she does. Nice. So That's Blake Russell, um, Kit, um, you and I will be watching the celebrity field. Yeah, we'll, we'll be keeping a keen eye on the celebrity field. Two football, two former football yeah, players. Yeah, two f- in the former field. football players. Kind of a, you know, they they're back almost every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug Flutie, of course. Uh, you know, Boston loves Doug. Yeah. And also Tiki Barber um, is running the course as well. So. Uh, We've also found out that the oldest runner um, is a woman. She's 84 years old. But, you know, really, my main thing that I'm looking forward to uh, are the famous peanut butter bacon burgers that uh, the Runner's World staff traditionally (laughs) enjoys. That's just a Friday night thing for you, or is that every night leading up? It depends on uh, on my mood, but it's (laughs) going to be a more than once thing. So I'm looking forward to Boston, uh, both elite fields, but also, you know, Everyone there has a story. So if you have a good story, let me know. Yeah. I'll come find you and talk to you. Email us, rwaudio at rodale.com. Um, and definitely check out all of our coverage at runnersworld.com slash boston-marathon. That's where you'll find everything on race day during the weekend before. Um, all the coverage that we're doing. We'll have videos and podcasts and just so much going on. Um, definitely check us out. Aaron. Thank you. Tell the dogs we say hello. Um, And uh, Kit, thank you again. Enjoy Boston, guys. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Okay, one more thing before we sign off here. We have curated the best of our Boston Marathon-related podcasts from both the Runner's World Show and from our sibling podcast, Human Race, just in time to get you inspired for this year's marathon on Monday, April 17th. The shows include interviews with race director Dave McGillivray about what it's like to put on this historic event, with Roberta Gibb on being the first woman to run it, and our very own Ambie Burfoot on winning the race. There's a show in there about the world's longest urinal that, yes, is definitely about Boston. There's a show about a Holocaust survivor and a man obsessed with catching runners who try to cheat their way into Beantown. 12 fascinating episodes that truly capture the range of characters united by the pageantry of this annual event. 
Go to runnersworld.com slash audio for a link to our Runner's World Boston feed or search for Runner's World Boston on iTunes. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks as always for your comments and ratings. We're always using your feedback to create a better show. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. Be sure to join us next week for another training roundtable. You guys sent in so many great questions, and we were able to address a bunch of them. As usual, it's an enlightening, informative, fun conversation with our experts here at Runner's World. You won't want to miss it. So thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.